Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Will you stand with me? John chapter 1. We're going to read John's Christmas story to start today. John's Christmas story is a bit different than Matthew's and Luke's, but it's a good one. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 and 14. John writes, In the beginning, the Word, that's Jesus, the Word already existed. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Verse 14. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we've seen his glory. The glory of the Father's one and only Son. The word of the Lord, you can be seated. Thanks be to God for all of his word. All right, so uh, over the last 18 months, people have had every reason in the world to fall out of the habit of church if they wanted to. Um, So if you're still here, my assumption is you're here because you want to be. Or you're here because you just really screwed up and you've tried everything else. And God's all you got left. And so it's a good option. If that's you, by the way, what you'll find is as you meet the people in this room, we're all pretty screwed up. And so you found the right place, okay? My point is that if you're here, it's probably because you want to encounter God. That's a good thing. And as Christians, we have a word for that. It's the word worship. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about worship. Specifically looking at this word, this idea through the lens of Christmas. My goal is to answer two questions as we move to Christmas. One is who is it that we worship? And two is how is it that we worship? Who do we worship? How do we worship? And I hope this will refresh your heart during this season. Now, the reason why I think Christmas is so good to talk about worship is because you can't really go through Christmas without worshiping. Even if you're not a Christian, you're kind of skeptical or whatever, the Christmas season gives you all the feels. Right, like the peace on earth, joy to the world, transcendence, the lights when it's dark outside and candles and traditions and nostalgia and the meals and the things that we do. All of it just sort of summons you into something bigger than yourself, right? Despite the fact that our culture has tried to secularize this holiday, to turn it into a consumeristic holiday where we shop where we spend money that we don't have on things that we don't need, oftentimes for people we don't even like, right? Like that's what it's become. And yet still underneath all the window dressing, the core pillars of the Christmas celebration are very Christian. For example, uh, Christmas is a season of generosity, right? Why? Why is it that we get more generous during this time of year than any other time of the year? You ever ask yourself, could, could it be, could it be, Because 2,000 years ago, 
Though he was rich, Jesus became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. The core of the first Christmas was God's cosmic generosity. Christmas is a season of gathering. We get together with friends and family members. We do to ugly Christmas sweaters. We do to, you know, eggnog or whatever kind of food that you have in your family gatherings. You do the white elephant. Some of you will get in the car and you will travel across country to be, again, with family that you don't, you don't even like. You don't like his side of the family, okay? And you don't have to tell him every day in December. We get it, okay? He, he gets the point, right? But you still go and it's all smiles and you bring the dessert and it's peace on earth, right? Why? Why do we do that? Could it be, could it be that on the first Christmas, it was a declaration of peace on earth? And that still echoes in our hearts 2,000 years later. Uh, Christmas is a celebration, festival even, of lights. You ever ask yourself why? Why do we go to the light shows? Why uh, does some of y'all go Clark Griswold on the house and literally light up the darkness? during the darkest time of year. Could it be, could it be on the first Christmas, the light really did shine in the darkness? Augustine, the great fourth century theologian uh, once said this talking about God. He said, I couldn't look directly at the sun, but I could look at where the light fell. Or in other words, oftentimes God comes to us and we experience him indirectly. And I think for our culture, Christmas is one of those seasons. It's almost impossible not to worship. So let's make sure we get it right this year. Now, here's the reality. Uh, when it comes to even Christians, people who've been in church for their entire lives, most of us have partial understandings and definitions of worship. So to start our series today, uh, I actually wanna do something very me. Like this is like a patented Tyler sermon. Um, before we get to Matthew and Luke's Christmas story, I wanna start by laying out for you a theology of worship. A brief theology of worship, but a biblical theology of worship. And I wanna kind of pull us up to some of the high points according to scripture of what worship means and what it should look like for us on the ground. We're gonna do it by, by looking at worship again through the, the ideas and, and, and doctrines of Christmas. Deal with this? Okay, so let's start, I have five points. Okay, note takers, you can write it down. You got your five points. We're gonna roll through them. I got five points today. We'll start off with the definition on your market set, go. Uh, first, the definition of worship. According to scripture, worship is when you offer ultimate value to something. It's literally that simple. You can worship anything. It doesn't have to necessarily be God. We see many examples in scripture of, of people worshiping things other than God. Worship is just when you offer ultimate value to something. I call it the throne of your heart. Everyone has a heart and on that heart, there's a throne and on that throne, you're allowing something to sit there and govern your life. Whatever's sitting there at any given moment, that's what you worship. Okay, worship is when you give ultimate value to something. Which means, back to our little definition slide here, worship is not, it's not just that part on Sundays where we stand in worship with us, okay? It's not just that, that is worship. But worship isn't just when we're singing the songs. In fact, did you know that it is quite possible for you to show up at church your entire life, years on years on years on years, and sing the little 20 minute song set every single weekend and not spend one second worshiping? According to the biblical definition of worship. See, Old Testament and New Testament tell us 
that authentic worship boils down to the heart of the worshiper. It's more about the spiritual circumstances of the worshiper's heart rather than the physical circumstances of the worship moment. I'll give you two passages, an old and a new. Uh, First, Old Testament, Isaiah chapter one, verse 11. Speaking on behalf of God, Isaiah gives these words to the people of God. Uh, Isaiah says, what makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord. Yeah, go ahead. It's the, it's the Bible, God. You said you want sacrifices in the Bible. Right? I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and the lambs and the goats. When you come to worship me, who asks you to pray through my courts with all your ceremony? Yeah, see that hand in the back, go ahead. It's the Bible. Like it's in like the Psalms, right? And that's, that's where we get it. God, you told us to, right? Stop, stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offering disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they are sinful and false, but I thought they were in the Bible. I want no more of your pious meetings. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with blood, blood of victims. So wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. This is how Isaiah begins his prophetic text. Basically, he says to us, if the heart of the worshiper ain't right, then it doesn't matter how great or biblical the ceremony is. So if your heart's not right, get out of my temple, God says. Jesus' sentiments are similar. Matthew 15, he says this to the Pharisees, hypocrisy. You hypocrites, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you when he said, this people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching human precepts as doctrines. Verse 19, for out of the heart, the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, and slander. Again, it boils down to the heart, right? Now, one of the most uh, disappointing and really disorienting things of the last 18 months has been watching how many people who have just fallen out of the habit, if you will, of church. It started back last March when churches had to shut down for a season, uh, went online. At first, everybody came online. Like the numbers were crazy and people were super engaged. Like we're gonna get through this, right? But then we watched as over the summers, the numbers started teetering off. And before you know it, people have disappeared. Like, like it's weird. In Kroger, I'll see people I haven't seen in three years. It's like, oh, where have you been? We're watching online. Are you? Like, it's, it's, but seriously, like, that's what they'll say, you know? Like, we haven't seen them, right? They just disappear. Now, now I, I make light of it, but, but it's defeating. As a pastor, a preacher, as one of the worship leaders, I've talked to our other worship leaders, we're like, where did we go wrong? Because if someone's faith disappears when a gathering disappears, we made the object of the worship the wrong thing, right? Now, compare that to... Uh, a worship experience though I had last Christmas Eve. Last Christmas Eve, it was December 24th. It was like 7 p.m. at night. We had our very last Christmas Eve service. Uh, If y'all remember, we did two services last year outside in the back parking lot. We literally pulled an old pickup truck out into the corner, put a floodlight on the truck because it was dark. We let the people out there light the candles for people who want to do the candles because you know that would be safe. You could socially distance and all the things. And um, 
It was, it, was good, it was good service. In fact, we thought it was a brilliant idea in October when we planned it. But then uh, as it got closer, um, we saw the forecast. It was gonna be 20 degrees. <laughs> and then on December 24th, it wasn't 20 degrees. It was 11 degrees out there and snowing pretty hard. I kid you not, it was so cold that Corbin could not take his acoustic guitar out there because the string would just snap if he played it. I, the only part of my skin that was showing were my eyes. Like I was that covered up and I'm like, why are we even doing this? Right? I say, the, the service was, uh, two, I think we sang two songs, little girl read the Christmas story and it was the shortest Tyler sermon you've ever heard. Um, I remember when I got out there, I was like, yeah, welcome everybody. Uh, Merry Christmas. And like people erupted in excitement. There, it was our biggest service out there on a pickup truck bed in the back parking lot. There were over 500 people out there and they were excited to be there. And it just was a good reminder for me that we can strip away all the ornamentation. We can do the lights if we want to, or we can not do the lights. We can do it out in the back parking lot and the heart of worship can still be there. Doesn't matter when or where, doesn't matter how cold or uncomfortable. We can bring a heart of worship. Psalm 107 verses one through two, give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he's good. That's why. His faithful love endures forever. That's why. Has the Lord redeemed you? Speak it out. Tell others he's redeemed you from your enemies. Again, it's not the physical circumstances of the worship, it's the spiritual circumstances of the heart of the worshiper, amen? That's what provokes worship. So we're gonna do something crazy again this year. On December 31st, this is not the 24th, and this is not a joke. On December 31st at 11.30 p.m. before 2022 happens, we're gonna open the doors of the church. We're gonna have the most simple little prayer and worship service here. I may be the only one here, it's fine. Uh, I assume the crowd will be pretty small. Some of you are like, that's crazy, because on New Year's Eve, I'm, anyways, Tyler. I'm just, but it is, it is a little bit crazy. It is a little bit crazy. But I find that sometimes when you step into disorienting worship moments like that, where you do something a little bit radical for God, he speaks to you. He speaks to you and you experience his presence in a radical way. So uh, save the date to hear more about it. December 31st, we're gonna come together and pray in the new year. Point number two, second. Uh, first, we uh, worship is when you offer ultimate value to someone, second. Um, we worship God alone who was revealed in Jesus. We worship God alone who was revealed in Jesus. Now, I know this sounds pretty elementary for y'all. It, it is elementary. This is pretty basic Christianity. But it's important to point out here uh, because this is what makes Christianity unique compared to other major world religions. Uh, we believe that, that God was born. <laughs> That's unique. Um, it's what we call incarnation. And it's the chief doctrine that we focus on during this time of year. Uh, in fact, Matthew sums up his whole Christmas story with incarnation. Matthew chapter two, or excuse me, chapter one, verses 22 through 23, he says, all of this, all of what? The Christmas story. All this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Again, this is what makes Christianity unique. Now, uh, believe it or not, there have been many religious leaders to live and die um, who claim to be a God. 
The reason why you probably can't name any of them though is because if you claim to be a God, you're a lunatic. And all of their movements failed and all of them went down in history as a lunatic, except for one. Upon one, the God title stuck. Let me say it this way. There have been several religious leaders to build massive followings. Muhammad, Buddha, Moses, uh, Confucius, right? All of them, all these guys. They've built huge followings. They're, they're known around the world, even still today. But none of them claim to be God, except one. Jesus, you know why they didn't claim to be God? They're too smart for that. If you claim to be God, you better be Godish. You better do God things. You better be like a sage and a revolutionary and you know, somewhat miraculous. You better not struggle with any of the normal human things that people who get power struggle with, like, I don't know, war, wealth, and women. And Jesus did it. Jesus lived most of his life in public spaces. Folks saw him. And 2,000 years later, he defies both categories. He's built a major world religion off the claim that he is in fact a God. This has been at the heart of the Christian message since the very beginning. Some people say this was like a later innovation of later followers of Jesus in order to get power. They, they made Jesus a God. I couldn't be further from the truth. Um, in Philippians chapter two, verse six, the apostle Paul writes a letter to the church in Philippi. It's dated back sometime around the, maybe the 60s uh, AD. And uh, in verses six through 11, of chapter two, many scholars believe that Paul preserves for us the oldest Christian hymn that we have. Some date it within years of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Here's how the hymn begins. Though Jesus was God, oh, there it is. Though Jesus was God, he did not think of quality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Fast forward past the New Testament era into the era of the early church fathers, they believed the same thing. For example, you have Ignatius' letter to the Ephesians, early second century, where he writes, for our God, Jesus the Christ was conceived by Mary. There it is. And God's plan uh, being sprung from the seed of David and from the Holy Spirit. Justin Martyr, later in the second century, writes this in his first apology, the father of the universe has a son, who being the word and first, begotten of God is also divine. And I'll give you several more examples of the early church fathers. Just wanna give you a sampling. This is what Orthodox Christianity has believed from the start. Now, did you know though, that one of the most dangerous moments in church history was over this doctrine of the full divinity of Jesus? Did you know this? This is one of the first great heresies. It caused one of the first councils of the church and it was over an argument of whether or not Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. It almost split the church in its earliest days. So the heresy is called the heresy of Arianism. This is what it is. Arianism believes that Jesus was not the full incarnation of God. It takes sort of a subordinationist approach to, to Jesus and says, rather he's like something a little less than that. He's a bridge, if you will, between the, uh, the human and the divine. The reason why it's called Arianism is because it was created by a priest from Alexandria, early fourth century named Arius. And uh, Arius was not only a brilliant intellect, but he's also a brilliant marketer. He would come up with like these songs. You can read some of them. He'd come up with these songs, these little jingles to make his theology stick on you. Um, like he had this one jingle where, um, where he said, there was before he was. Basically trying to imply that Jesus was created somehow. 
This is what I'm saying. Arius would have killed on Twitter today because he just dropped those little 160 character tweets and people were like, oh, that's good. Retweet, retweet, retweet. Now, again, this priest was so clever and his, his ideas took so quickly that they spread throughout the Roman Empire. Some scholars, scholars suggest that his belief became the majority of belief of Christians during that time. Uh, when Constantine, the first Christian emperor uh, took over, um, he made Christianity the favored religion. He actually realized that there was lots of dissension among Christian leadership. So he called the first big council, the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. And he literally footed the bill so that 300 bishops could travel to modern day Turkey and work it out. And the number one item on their agenda was not the canon like some people believe it was Arius's heresy. Now again, just to prove to you that this has been the belief since the beginning, all the bishops but two voted against Arianism. That Jesus was in fact God. It's the two bishops of Libya for nerds in here who care, okay? And from that moment, they created the, count, uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, Nicene Creed. And if you've been in a high church context before Northeast, you've probably said the Nicene Creed over and over and over. Here's the relevant part for today. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, uh, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Some of y'all didn't even need the words, right? Jesus is God. That's the point. We worship him. That makes Christianity unique. It's been our belief from the start. Now, that brings us to worship point number three. Third, uh, third, we all worship something. This is why I believe it's so important, by the way, for us to worship Jesus. Because at every moment, you can't opt out of worship. We are always worshiping something and whatever you worship either makes you or breaks you. Christians are really good at convincing ourselves, by the way, uh, that we worship God when we're not. Many of us just use God like a divine sort of genie or a cosmic therapist to get, to get something, like we use God to get blessing or we use God to get happiness or health, wealth, and prosperity or a sense of significance or safety. When I was in high school, I used to write Bible verses on my baseball tape because I wanted God to give me three for four that day at the plate, right? Like this is, that's the mindset though. That's the mindset. And whatever you really want that you're using God for, that's what you actually worship. You see, Harry Potter. Okay. So um, I heard a pastor uh, use the first book, first movie, uh, Harry Potter wants to describe worship. It's, it was so good. So there's this, there's this scene in the first Harry Potter book where uh, Harry Potter finds a magical mirror. It's called the Mirror of Erised. Now this is a, a, a children's book, it's like a book for kids. So Erised is just, you guys know this, right? It's just the word desire spelled backwards. And that's what's at the heart of the mirror. Now, Potter doesn't know this, so he stands in front of the mirror and when he looks into it, you remember what he sees? He sees himself there with his parents. His parents are loving him. They're like touching him. They're with him. And, uh, and this is strange because his parents died early in life. He never got to know them. Strange for him. It's heartwarming. And he wonders, what is this magic? So he goes and gets Ron Weasley, his friend, to show Weasley, thinking that, that Weasley's gonna see his parents as well. But when Weasley gets there, you remember what he sees? He's like, look, I'm an athlete. I'm awesome, right? So they're thinking, what kind of magic is this? 
Well, eventually, I think it's Dumbledore, uh, the, the Harry's mentor comes and he explains to him how the mirror works. He says, the mirror is the mirror of, of desire. It's the mirror of Erised. And it shows you what the deepest desires of your heart are. Now, here's the connection. All of us look in the mirror and see something. All of us. And whatever you see, that's the object of your worship. What do you see? What is it that your heart is telling you, if I just got that, I'd be happy. If I just got that, my life would be complete. If I just got that, then I would know who I really am. What is it? What is it? That's the object of our worship. Now that brings us to point number four. It's closely related here. Number four. Um, as we think about worship, what we start to realize is that it's the key to life. It's the very reason why we exist. It's at the core of what it means to be human. You, you know that all of your problems, anxieties, and fears, they stem from your worship. Whatever you worship. You know your exhaustion, your frustration, all your striving and longing in life, those feelings stem from what you worship. Your pleasures, your obsessions, your addictions, all that stems from your worship. Worship is at the core of the human experience because we're always worshiping. Now, scripture teaches that we exist for God which is why it's so important that, that we worship Jesus. But we human beings can be so narcissistic. And so in our narcissism, lots of times we just worship ourselves. We make the world revolve around us. Have you noticed this about you? That promise, your wife has, promise, ask. Okay, so I will say this. The Christian worldview has a very high view of human beings, very high view. We are the crown of God's creation. We're created in his image. It means that we are more special than puppies and butterflies and rainbows and sunshine, which is an elite list for my three-year-old daughter. Like, and yet we were created in his image and none of those things were. Christianity is very humanitarian, if you will, but it's not anthropocentric. It does not teach that the world revolves around human beings. No, there is an entity, a being that is more supreme than you and I. Yet oftentimes, we tend to forget that. Okay, I, I feel like today we get overly infatuated with the doctrine of the image of God, if that's in fact possible. I am all for the doctrine of the image of God, by the way. We should see it in all people, including the vulnerable, including people who don't look like us, who have racial or ethnic differences in us, different socioeconomically. They may not be able-bodied like we are. They, they may not deserve our love, and yet they deserve our love because of the Imago Dei in them. That's at the heart of the Love the Ville movement. I am so fond of the doctrine of the Imago Dei. But sometimes I believe that we can focus on that at the, at the expense of other important doctrines. For example, in that same creation story where we're created in God's image, we're also made from the dust of the ground. And we're also responsible for the curse of sin that wreaks havoc on humanity. And we're also promised by God that one day we'll return to the dust of the ground. We have limitations. Oh, and also in that same creation story where we were given the, the image of God, we're reminded that there was a time we didn't even exist. And God was just fine. So now there was a time that we did come to exist and God did create us and he created us in love, in his image, a beautiful thing. But when he created us, he created us for purpose and that purpose was not so that you could leave a legacy, you could live your best life, you could discover the authentic you or whatever. No, he, he created you for one purpose and that is to worship 
him. Revelation chapter four, the revelator John actually, he gives us an apocalypsis, an apocalypse, the Greek word is apocalypsis. It means an unveiling. He grabs the material curtain of this world that we see. He pulls it back. We get to look into the spiritual realm, into heaven for a moment. And in Revelation four and five, what we see happening is a worship service. And in that worship service, you know what they're singing? All of creation is booming before God and the lamb right now, these words. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. You're worthy of our worship, basically. For, or because you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. Or in other words, you serve at the pleasure of the president the president of the universe. And you feel me? You feel me? Okay, so I have been off uh, social media for over two months now. And uh, the reason why I, I decided to do that was uh, as a spiritual formation experience, uh, experiment. I think we all see kind of the mal effects of it. There's like really good and beautiful things that accomplish. There's also some bad things like it dicks us and it, it shapes our behavior and our emotions and in really strange ways. And so I just, as a spiritual formation experiment, I wanted to see how my life changed if I got off of it. I'm not quite done with it yet. I'll give you uh, more extensive reports on my findings in coming weeks. But here's what I would uh, sum, summarize it, my experience as uh, up to this point. Um, I think the bad outweighs the good. This is my opinion, you have your own. I think the bad outweighs the good. Um, in fact, uh, if I were given the choice, I had to like choose you know, two buttons. You can push this button and it'll accelerate social media platforms or you could push this one and it will detonate them without even thinking. By the way, young people, you wanna live a truly countercultural life for Jesus, I dare you to try it. Just check off social media for a while, right? It might cost you some things, but it might change you as well. Now I understand that some people have to, uh, have to be on social media for their business. Our church needs to have a social media account. Um, but for most of us, it has nothing to do with business, it's pleasure. Right? And come on, how egotistical do you have to be to believe that you need to keep three digital platforms updated on yourself real time so that the world can go round? This is what social media does. It addicts us and it, it feeds our narcissism. We start believing that the world revolves around us. It becomes this stage that we can stand on and perform for the applause or the attention, the appreciation and approval or for the pity of other people. It just imagine, whatever you want, that's what you use it to get. Be real with me for a second, okay? If people knew how much time you spent curating your posts, if people knew how much time you spent taking that picture at just the right angle. If people knew how important it was to you to have more followers than him or her, like you're measuring it. If people knew how quickly and how often you checked how many likes or shares you get or, or with how much emotion you step into the comment section of your post. If people knew the raw amount of time and energy you invested in your social media platforms every week, it would be pretty embarrassing, wouldn't it? Oh, and the virtue signaling as well. Have you ever noticed that uh, 
we are always casting ourselves as either the hero, the sage, or the victim in every one of our posts. Look at my holy rage. Look at my amazing accomplishment. Look at how funny I am. Look at my brilliant political take. Look at my suffering. Look at my perfect marriage. Look at my weekend and social life with my friends and how glamorous and sophisticated it is. Look at me. I had to get off. I had to get off. Because it was leading me to believe that not only was the world created for me, but I was created for the world. And neither one of those is true. I am created and you are created for one reason and one reason only, we exist to perform for an audience of one, capital O. And I reckon this would be a good time to welcome our Facebook and YouTube audience onto <laughs> to the room right now. Oh. <laughs> oh, son. We're so glad you're here today. Um, we really are, we really are. Do you know um, the first time Jesus worshiped in, uh, in the New Testament is in the Christmas story. At least the, the, the most popular Christian word for worship. Matthew chapter two, verse 11. Um, they, they is the Magi, the wise men. They entered the house, saw the child Jesus with his mom Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped. It's the Greek word proskuneo. They worshiped him. Um, then they opened their treasure chests and gave the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. <clears throat> Our English word worship actually comes from an old English word, worthship. It means to ascribe value or to recognize the worth of something, right? And again, it comes from the original Greek word here that we see in Matthew chapter two, proskuneo. Proskuneo has two component parts. One is a verb, kaneo, to kiss. The other is a preposition, pros, uh, which means toward. So it's to kiss towards, quite literally. And I've seen uh, some worship leaders, not ours, by the way. Ours are far too theologically sophisticated. Thank you, Corbin. But um, I've seen some worship leaders totally butcher this and turn this word into like boyfriend Jesus, where worship is all about, literally, I've heard this, it's about, it's about blowing kisses to Jesus. We just blow kisses to God. Now, that is not how the word is used in its first century context. You need to understand, the word's used more like how, how a subject would kiss the ring of a ruler. The word is used how how someone might lay their face prostrate against the ground and kiss the dirt before a superior. Some scholars believe that the word is used when a dog licks its master's hand. That's our posture before him. There's no narcissism in a posture of worship like that. All right, we are simply out of time. So classic Tyler, the, the fifth point, let's move on. This is the practical point, what I really want you to take home with you today. Practical here, fifth. This may be the most critical thing I'll say throughout the series, and this is where we're gonna leap onto next week, last. We must learn to worship in the ordinary. You realize almost all of our worship happens in the ordinary. Worship happens every day, everybody, everywhere, in the home, workplace, city, and church. So if you don't learn to worship in the ordinary, then you'll never be a very good worshiper. Uh, Tish Harrison Warren, brilliant thinker, Anglican priest, uh, wrote a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary. It's all about this. In this, she wrote this, this paragraph, which gets at the heart of what we're talking about here. Uh, she says, every new day, this is the, the turn my heart must make, okay? This is the turn. 
I'm living this life, the life right in front of me. This one where marriage is a struggle. This one where we aren't living as we thought we might or as we hoped we would. This one where we are weary, where we wanna make a difference but aren't sure where to start, where we have to get dinner on the table or the kid's teeth brush, where we have back pain and boring weeks, where our lives look small, where we doubt, where we wrestle with meaninglessness, where we worry about those we love, where we struggle to meet our neighbors and love those closest to us, where we grieve, where we wait. She writes, how I spend this ordinary day in Christ is how I will spend my Christian It's really good theology. Now she goes on in the book to actually teach you how to worship in the ordinary. Every single one of her chapters are actually, okay, let me just read it to you. This is, these are her chapter titles. You ready for this? Uh, chapter one, waking up. Chapter two, making the bed. Chapter three, brushing teeth. Like she's teaching you how to worship in these moments. Chapter four, losing keys. Five, eating leftovers. Six, fighting with my husband. Chapter seven, checking email. Eight, sitting in traffic. Nine, calling a friend. 10, drinking tea. And 11, sleeping. I, I love it. It's brilliant. It's kind of hilarious. And it's also the most important book I've read this year. I'd suggest it to all of you. See, you know what it does? It undermines one of the heresies of our day. You wanna know what one of the heresies of our day is? It's the heresy that somehow worship does not happen in ordinary moments. Only in the electric moments. Only in that hour on Sunday morning where we come in and they got the stage set and the Christmas lights are like with the music, the Christmas, you saw the Christmas tree? That was cool. And there's like Jesus smoke pumping in the room and they got the big screen on the wall, you know, and professional, professional musicians on stage hitting that chord with the volume turned up and you can feel God in your soul, right? Like that's when we worship. I'll tell you this, I am so thankful for the environments that we create here on Sunday morning. I am so thankful for moments of energy and emotion. One of the things I think high church environments miss is summoning people's emotions in worship gatherings, especially like the one on Sunday morning where we're celebrating the resurrection. Okay, there should be some power and some extravagance to it. People should flex those artistic gifts God has given them to the glory of God so that we can be inspired and our hair stands up. Don't get me wrong, I like all that, but one of the scary things is if we're not careful, we come to believe that only then are we really worshiping. So if it's boring, we leave. Or uh, you know, we go to the church that's got that Nashville band that I'm listening to on the radio coming in this weekend or, or we go to the church that has the mega room with the LED wall behind back. You see the LED wall or, or we go to the church on Christmas Eve that puts acrobats hanging from the ceiling <laughs> and they do like angel stuff in the room. And you're like, oh. <laughs> Again, I love all that stuff. I love it, but let us not allow it to short circuit our ability to worship in the ordinary. See, it's easy to worship here. It's easy to worship here. But we have to master worshiping while we're sitting at work in front of the computer, while you're in school at a desk learning, while you're doing household chores or changing your baby's diaper, when you got a headache, when you're feeling tired, you're putting on makeup, all of the seemingly mundane tasks of the day, Jesus wants to meet us in those moments. Look, look to Jesus. This, is this not one of the mysteries of the incarnation? 
that God becomes human and spends the majority of his life in the unknown and ordinary. You don't know much about what Jesus did for the first 30 years of his life. It's not until he gets baptized around the age of 30 that we would call what he does extraordinary ministry. And even during those three and a half years of ministry, what's, what's he doing? Like he's spending time eating dinner and like, I don't, how much time does he spend just walking from one place to another with his disciples? One of my favorite things to do is uh, to get to go to the workplaces and the homes of people in our church to see where ministry is really happening. I, I, I love it. And every time I go, I try to remind people, hey, this is your ministry. You know that, right? God called me to the ministry. He called you as well. God called me to the ministry of the local church, but he's called you to the ministry of this, whatever living room or workspace this is. Sacred spaces are not more spiritual than secular spaces. You're here one hour a week. You're here 167 others somewhere else. You have to bring a heart of worship there as well. So we read John chapter one at the beginning. I would remind you of it here to close. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh, y'all. And he went fishing. The word became flesh and he took a nap. The word became flesh and he stubbed his toe. The word became flesh and he had a nine to five blue collar construction job through his twenties. And yet through all the ordinary, he was able to bring glory to God. Is this not the beauty of the ordinariness of Christmas? The straw in the manger, the poor unknown couple, the obscure Bethlehem town where God decides to show up. It's in the ordinary where God desires to meet us. It's in the ordinary where in fact he does. And so I pray this Christmas you will recognize that it is in fact an invitation for you to meet him right back in the ordinary of your lives. Right now we're gonna close with a worship moment. It's quite ordinary. We're gonna eat ordinary bread, drink ordinary juice. Remember the most extraordinary thing that happens in the world. So I'm gonna welcome tomorrow on the stage. Let's finish our time of worship together.